0: I want to say that uh, it was a lot of not not pressure at all, but it was mostly being educated by like people who were Assyrian in Aksu. You know, they they really do a good job in telling you in a nice way that you know, although you identify as Syriac with your church, we are all Assyrian. <laughs>
1: Imagine growing up as a Syriac Orthodox Church member, never hearing or knowing who Assyrians are. You know yourself as an Arab Christian and identify with the country your family's from, Syria. Then you go to university where you are approached by a group called the Assyrian-Chaldean-Syriac Student Union and you wonder, what's going on? It gets better. You meet a bunch of the members, develop lifelong friends, discover that Syriac is also known as Assyrian And to top it all off, you meet your future husband. Whoa. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Rosemary Georges, who is the 2016 recipient of the Assyrian Canadian of the Year Award given by the Center for Canadian Assyrian Relations. She is a member of the Syriac Orthodox Church, the previous president of the Assyrian Chaldean Syriac Student Union of Canada, also known as Aksu, and a master's candidate for health services research at the University of Toronto. You'll get to listen to Rosie's interesting journey of how she came to identify as an Assyrian in her adult years, the challenges she's dealt with marrying an Assyrian of a different Christian sect, and her dissertation covering mental health in the midst of the Syria conflict. Now before we get into the interview, if you know someone who needs to be on this podcast or if you'd like to serve as a co-host much like myself for your particular region, shoot us an email at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to share this episode. Rate us and review us on the iTunes store, on Google Play, or wherever it is that you're listening. And I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode.
0: So I was raised in the Syriac Orthodox Church and was baptized, attended Sunday school. But when I was turning 18, I remember there was a group of people who were coming to our church to do a talk. And I remember at the time, my priest told us, You know, there's like this youth gathering, you should all stay afterwards and listen, it's about Assyrians and the Bible. So I remember there was a professor from McMaster. She was a scholar on religious studies at McMaster. And so she was doing a presentation who assyrians were in the bible however the term i i don't remember what if what i thought about the term uh at the time because we don't use the word assyrian in our church have you ever heard the word up until that point i mean probably when i would read the bible like if we ever read about assyrians in isaiah but you know just like any other tribe that you were to read about in the bible you kind of just like struggle to say it and you move on so i never really thought about it and till that topic was uh, being brought up in the church and there were members of Axu that I never met before. There was one individual who was a deacon in our church who I guess through being a, you know, a student at York University got involved and he got them the space. This is what my understanding was and so there was members of Axu at the event who told me after the event finished you should join Axu at York. If you're going to York, because they tried to mingle with the, you know, the audience. And I remember there were some, you know, female, male participants of uh, Aksu who, you know, just were all gathering together and told me, at, you know, at York, we're going to have a meeting. I mean, I have to be honest, it was a challenge at the first meeting to kind of get excited because I didn't know anybody. Even the guy who I knew from church who was involved was pretty much finished with it. He was done school and he wasn't going to be there the year after. So I think I stopped attending meetings almost right away. Like just was going through my own personal issues at school. So I dropped out of Axu, I guess. I never really became an official member until entering my third year so i was happy that at least i can get involved in a group where it was close to home however it was still kind of new to me the whole assyrian culture that we would have to sit at a table in the student hall and talk about because i didn't Relate to it at all. If you were to tell me Ishtar or any like a uh, Syrian god or goddess like I had no idea who they were <laughs> We don't talk about these things at home and I never identified as a Syrian until like I got more active in Aksu Before that I was more I guess I'm from Syria. My parents are from Syria I've been to Syria a few times by that point. However, we spoke Arabic. I learned Arabic verbally Never written Arabic. We never really found the need for it. But we did learn Syriac. In the church, we learned the Western script. Suryoyo. Suryoyo, yep. And that that term we knew. Most of us just called each other Arabs. And we would just joke about Arab people because we thought we were the Arabs. <laughs> and we would speak in Arabic. Dance to Arabic songs.
1: So growing up, is that how you identified as uh, Arab Christian?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, Syrian Christian, mostly just Syria. Like the Syrian flag was the you know flag I probably most identified with growing up, aside from the Canadian flag. But yeah. So anyways, in my third year, I would attend a few more events with Axu. I got really close to some of the members, regardless of like the kind of uncomfort I faced when I was faced with a question by someone who's not Assyrian yeah. at school. <laughs> like, who are Assyrians? I think people at Axu were very good at making posters of information <laughs> that you can kind of just resort to if you didn't know. And there was a lot of booklets and, you know, the whole thing was just to kind of get more people involved. So it wasn't so heavy on you know, educating when you would interact with people other than when you have an event. Let's say we hosted, uh, I guess, an academic to come and speak about Assyrians, whether they were Assyrian or not. I remember we had a talk by Gwendolyn Cates. That was interesting. She's not Assyrian. She does a lot of work on indigenous people. And I think that was just right after I applied for the Axu Scholarship. And I don't want to say that that's what got me more interested because I received $1,000 and I felt like I owed my life <laughs> to this group. So I don't know. You just feel that there's a reward or that there's a purpose in this group. And I mean, I think as humans, like that's one of the things that gets us active in any group is how will this benefit me? So although there was that stumble of the vision or the even the whole mission behind this group was to educate people about the assyrian culture when i saw that syriac was also recognized in this group that meant that my group that i identified with my whole life is being represented perhaps the culture is still a little bit vague because us as syriac people we don't practice like a one unified culture either because we have people who lived in iraq we have people who lived in syria in lebanon and i find that a lot of people in my church pretty much just identify with their country's cultural customs. So we have people from Mosul, we call them Moslawi. You know, you have people from Lebanon, Libnani. Like I find, you know, I can't even relate to the people in my church who are from Iraq Hmm. because we have different dialects. We Mm -hmm. have different, we even call foods differently. We have different foods and dances. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of gray area when you want to say, okay, I'm Syriac, what does that mean? Even till now, when I want to address that to someone from my church, I have to really just make it known to them that you as a Syriac person, this is your faith. This is your church identity. This is not who you are as as an ethnic background. So it's still a little bit of a challenge. But then when you look at Assyrians, it's not as gray area anymore. Like, you know, everybody understands the culture if you know it. You know, there's the Lamassu. You know, everybody seems to identify with the Lamassu. Everyone seems to identify with, you know, Assyrian clothing. We don't have clothing either. Like as a person from the Syriac church, like I didn't know what do Arabs wear. Like you see the, like the way that people wear the head wrap or, mm-hmm. you know, the what you say in Arabic, like that's all I knew. Mm-hmm. But when you see and you go to Assyrian weddings, it's also completely different. <laughs> it was like a whole different culture yeah. when you step into the word Assyrian we go to church actually we have a large group of people within my own church who expect the church to be an establishment for their culture as well so let's say on fridays we used to have nadi that's where we would speak and learn the syriac language whereas on sunday it was specifically for church purposes for sunday school for reading the bible and for attending mass and that was it so People were not getting the entire picture or their, you know, entire needs as a cultural and uh, religious group. So they were fighting for, like, Friday nights to have at least some opportunity to learn more about the culture. And uh, that didn't go well for very, very long because there wasn't a big interest. Mm. Like if you don't have an establishment that's dedicated to the culture and to uh, allow for people to gather as a community, let's say outside of religion, it creates for more problems to be happening. So would you say then Aksu has created
1: that ability for people to gather outside of church?
0: I think so. And in my own opinion, I think Aksu is the only group that represents Assyrians that has brought people of other faiths or other identities, let's say Chaldean and Syriac, to be united. Because there has always been the Assyrian society, but I myself did not know it. My parents don't know it, or I'm pretty sure any other Chaldean didn't know it same thing goes with ADM, Zoha, again I didn't know what that group was until I joined Aksu and then found out that this is an Assyrian political organization. So I think Aksu is probably the only group that has been able to live as long as the other groups and bring in everybody because I don't remember meeting anybody who was Assyrian my whole life <laughs> until I became a student. Through your time in Aksu,
1: how did you go from, so you're more or less as you're saying, when you initially joined in and left, you're an AXU dropout. <laughs> and then you came in a couple years later, yeah, knowing some people, having met them and feeling a lot more comfortable with with the group because you knew some familiar faces. How did you go from from all of that to then becoming the the president?
0: I don't know. I think it was many things. Making friendships with people, having a relationship within the group also played a role. And, you know, you were getting, I was getting a lot out of the group, you know, whether it was adding to my resume or the scholarship, meeting academics, having a purpose, I think as a student also keeps you driven because with AXU we have, let's say, deadlines. We have expectations we had like bi-weekly meetings we had to keep attending and there was a sense of community even whether like despite whether you you know had many friends going into it you make friends because of like how often you have to see each other at least i was able to find people who are not in my program because you know we're all coming from different uh, academic backgrounds but we're all in the same school and you know you make friends So it kind of, I mean, it's not just a volunteer group, let's say, but you know, you kind of find it as a social group. You can make it an educational group for yourself, whatever you like, you can kind of find it in Axoon. I found a lot of things in it that kept me really active in the group. And I mean, getting up to, let's say like the leadership role, I just think that for me as a person in my career and my academics, um, I just find myself to be a leader. So I was always like happy to take on a new leadership role. Um, even in my church, I'm, I've been active as a leader for many years, since I was like 19. So, I mean, I saw the opportunity and I took it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it comes natural. Leadership comes natural, to you. Yeah. I think you've been a great leader as well. I'm going to go back a little bit. And Rosie, you had mentioned, so coming into AXU and sort of all of your life, identity-wise... You've identified with being an Arab Christian or identifying with your your country, Syria, that you and your family came from. So at what point when, when you were joining Aksu, did you begin to then make the transition into identifying as a Syrian?
0: Mm-hmm. I want to say that uh, it was a lot of not not pressure at all, but it was mostly being educated by like people who were Assyrian in Aksu. You know, they they really do a good job in telling you in a nice way that you know, although you identify as Syriac with your church, we are all Assyrian. You know, Syriacs and Chaldeans are Assyrian. So it was a little bit difficult to kind of digest from just their point of view, but when I started to meet people who were from the Syriac Church who also identify as Assyrian, it kind of made me stop and think, okay, this is strange to me. Like, they speak Syrioyo, and they go to the same church as I do. However, why are they talking about being Assyrian? Like, why do they represent an Assyrian group, such as AJM? We had... Um, sorry for the speakers who sorry. may not know, what is AJM? AJM, and it's in German, so I will not attempt, but I believe it's the Assyrian Youth Federation of Central Europe... They came in 2013, which was about a year into my involvement in Axu, And we did an exchange. And I believe it was the first exchange, sorry, international youth summit that we had with uh, groups from the United States as well as, I think, Sweden. And, you know, I found it very interesting that they were so passionate about our, our language and that they identified as Assyrian, But then they're members of the Syriac Church. So it's like, it's very cool, you know, understanding for me from their side of it. And then meeting academics like Sabri. Sabri is of the Syriac faith as well. However, he identifies as Assyrian. So I remember he really uh, taught me a lot when it came to that sort of identity issue, because he himself calls himself Assyrian. So he gave me a little more understanding about it and reassurance and was so supportive. He became like a brother to me in that experience and getting towards the term Assyrian was just, like I mentioned, a process of just getting to know what it meant to be from many people, like from different sort of aspects of it. And even as a, you know, if you look at it linguistically, like Nicholas El Gillo spoke about at the convention in Chicago, which also was maybe at the time where I was kind of like being more comfortable with the identity as an Assyrian person. And then also meeting Peter, who like is a member of the Assyrian Church of the East. So more and more I was like, you know what, I'd start calling myself Assyrian because I believe it and it just makes more sense. And what what language do you speak or is spoken at, at home? the Syriac Orthodox Oh, at the Church. Syriac Orthodox Church. So it's classical Syriac. It's not even what you would hear in Sweden or Germany. Between people, they speak turoyo.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, however, in the church, we, they use kthobonoyo, which is the classical Syriac. And after church finishes, everybody speaks in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Not even maybe more than one family or three, let's say maximum, can speak turoyo. And Turoyo is um, it's the like spoken a modern, Western modern. Yeah, okay. it's more of a modern Western dialect that people speak. Even if you were to look at videos from Rinio or Bitkano, it's Turoyo. I see. But we speak Arabic during sermon yeah. time. Okay. Like Syriac basically makes up about an hour of the mass, which is all the like the hymns, and then the sermon is sung in Arab Or sorry, spoken in Arabic, and then you'll have maybe one or two hymns in Arabic. But yeah, that's literally the only time where it's spoken
1: when you had met peter your husband your wonderful husband (laughs) through axu he is a member of the assyrian church of the east what was that experience like
0: so recently we have been going to like a church that we can both find pleasure in like whether it's the sermon the worship uh the the people at the church so we go to that on our own however i serve in my own church and the youth ministry so you know when it comes to like a youth event peter's always is there because we do retreats we do you know bible studies we we plan them we do them on our own so at least it's sort of in line with like what we like to do as well so that's where he shows up at my church it's mostly for youth events and even for like sunday mass you know our church what we do is because if it's syriac arabic Many of the uh, youth members don't even understand Arabic because they were either raised in Canada or born in Canada and speak English. So we have Sunday school. So that's what usually like our alternative is like we would not even sit in mass. We just like go attend Sunday school because it's happening at the same time. But if we do need to go to mass, because, for example, once a month, our church typically does Syriac English. So like the sermon is ha- had in English. I am a member of the choir, so I have to be present in the church during that mass. So Peter just sits in when whenever that happens. Poor guy doesn't understand almost anything up until the sermon, which is like the same thing I go through as well. So it's not really that big of a difference between what we're both going through during the mass
1: i can imagine that you and peter aren't alone in this struggle i think that both of you face right now i think there's a lot of assyrians around the world who can probably be facing similar things switching gears i want to hear a little bit about your research how did you get into your master's program how did you get into the research that you are currently in
0: So in my bachelor degree, I studied psychology and health studies. And the reason why I applied for a master's degree is after I volunteered for a few years at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, it's a mental health and addiction hospital as well as a research hospital. So I realized that a lot of the positions that were maybe of a higher salary range or even just higher skill level required a master's degree. And there was the program manager at the time who had a master's of health administration. And I really admired the work that she was doing. And I realized, okay, so maybe a master's degree is what I need to get where I wanna be. So I might as well do it now, like while I'm fresh and you know, I can get going with it right away. However, you had to pick a thesis. So growing up in university, I really wanted to know more about mental health. So mental health services, even in Canada, are not even close to what people need and i myself like i had experience with this like i had a mental health issue when i was in university and i struggled to find help because it's very expensive and it's not very much talked about so even like wanting to tell people that I, what i was going through i almost never did because we all know that it's not like it's a stigma people it's don't it's a wanna, taboo almost even yeah it's in our a tab- culture too it, exactly yeah. even in my own house like it was hard to get my parents to understand what i was going through and at first i wanted to to mostly uh, study more about like mental health provision in Ontario. And it was, I think in the beginning of 2015, like this was March, 2015, the Syrian conflict was happening for almost four years at that time I have met many family members that were like affected whether it was like in Homs by the bombings or I had a relative that was held hostage like for a couple months my mom's cousin died in Sadad when it was overtaken for a couple of months so there was a lot of you know things in my house that was affecting me personally knowing that there was like this conflict happening in Syria I tried to go and see my family when it first started and I was not able to go so I said to myself, okay, maybe I could explore Syrian people in my project, but how can I do that? And I wanted to tie mental health into it. So I asked my professor if he was cool with the idea of looking at Syrians and how the men- the conflict in Syria is affecting their mental health. And he loved it. He to identify why is it that the conflict is bothering you as a Syrian person now living in Canada because you've left war, you've left, you know, this place of unsafety and you've come to a place of safety. So what is it that's keeping you, you know, thinking about the conflict and what's happening in Syria. Now for a refugee, it's very, you know, obvious, they left their country, they experienced a lot of trauma, Uh, they were forced out of their country, should I say. And they either lost somebody, they lost their, you know, their possessions. So they're coming with a lot of baggage versus someone who's been here for over like five years, 10 years, did not see a day of war. How come the war is bothering them? Well, for many of the immigrants, especially those that were, let's say, reaching their, their 50s or their 60s, had very, like, they were planning to go back to Syria after they retire because they had homes, they had probably even, you know, businesses that were operating without them there, but suddenly can't. There's this loss of connection to their homeland, and they also probably had a lot of family living in Syria. So their daily functioning is being disrupted by news or thinking about their family members who are in a city, let's say Homs or Damascus or Aleppo, where we know during different periods of the war, we're under extreme, uh, you know, times of the conflict. There was a lot of destruction. Uh, ISIS became a problem following the rebels. And, you know, it was just like one thing after another, like just Got worse for these people who have left many many years ago, because that was all the news would talk about. Every time you flip open your Facebook, every time you open the CNN or you know even Canadian news channels, it's always about Syria. It's always about Bashar al-Assad, and you know even Canadians started having their own opinion of the president. Whereas before the war, nobody knew what Syria was. I myself. Uh, growing up here and having parents from Syria people didn't know where it was on the map they knew where Lebanon was even though it's like (laughs) the size of Homs (laughs) they knew where that was but not Syria and uh, yeah so there's like a lot of great things that I found in my research whether it was about their resettlement or their issues with the conflict I also talked about mental health so we know like you mentioned earlier like mental health is like a taboo in our community so I was really hoping to kind of give uh, Canadians or even like people who are working in mental health or migration a better understanding of what do Syrians even think about mental health before we go ahead and we work so hard on a workshop or provide resources for mental health for a group of people who probably don't even wanna like, they don't even want help within this field because they deal with it in a different way. And then a Canadian might go into like a psychiatric office or a psychologist's office and speak one-on-one and they apply like cognitive behavioral methods or, you know, psychoanalysis, like, you know, these are all unknown to people in syria and it's not just because they think it's a taboo there is not a lot of psychologists in syria or in the middle east like it's just not a common practice a lot of people because we have such a strong tie to our religion whether you're muslim or syria or christian you think that it's because you're not praying enough or you know there's like a demon inside of you like it has nothing to do with like the way that our body functions like the brain is an organ of itself it functions your whole body and if you were to ask a Canadian what is mental health it's you know it's not just about like your mental well-being it's about your emotional your physical because your brain controls everything in your body so it's about a balance like between all of these your physical your emotional your spiritual your your mental working together to you know better the overall of your well-being and then when you ask a person from Syria, what do you think about myself? Just getting to that definition is a process of itself. Like we can probably have a half an hour interview about that because right away they would say, what do you mean? I'm not crazy. I um, don't have a mental illness. So that those are the sort
1: of misconceptions that are yes, attached to it or almost interchangeable. That are synonymous. Yeah.
0: Interchangeable, and then you go to a professional in chem age and tell them, you know, mental illness and mental health are the same thing, they will look at you and turn away because that is the biggest insult to the mental health work, the research work that people are doing. It's to sort of allow people to understand mental health in the same way that they understand physical health. When I say, hey, how's your physical health? You will tell me all the good and all the bad. Why is it when I ask about your mental health, you right away tell me all the bad? Like, this is not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, what's making you, uh, you know, function better at work. Are you exercising? Great. Are you reading? Great. Are you praying? Are you doing yoga? Like, these are all, you know, practices that uh, an individual will do to make sure their mental health is on a positive level. But when you want to ask Syrians about their mental health, you have to kind of break it down for them. I almost end up asking about their emotional well-being because that's what they understand it as. I'm not sure what the Assyrian term for it is, but in Arabic we say and most of the time they'll tell me, oh, I know how to control it. It's all how you want to make yourself feel. You tell yourself you're feeling good, you'll feel good. You listen to other people, you'll feel depressed. Just, you know, have your head strong, analyze things and you will be fine. Didn't realize that it's <laughs> not, not that easy. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not the way that mental health works. But for them, that's how it works. And I wanted to understand more about their methods of coping. So I had to ask them, okay, if you're stressed, you know, what do you feel? Or what do you do like to, to become less stressed? And then I got to know more about the things that people do in their own time, whether it's like picking up a phone, talking to their friend, socializing some even mentioned how they're heartbroken shisha will not be a thing anymore and you know restaurants because and for all of the listeners shisha hookah whatever you want to call it here in ontario they're trying to ban it in in any lounge i mean we laugh but it it is a
1: a cultural component yes huge
0: actually before um syrians started to migrate to canada in this big wave There was not a lot of Syrians in in the city of Toronto. So all of a sudden you have all these Syrians and what do they they know well? They know how to operate a business. So a lot of them are coming here, maybe not right away, but eventually they've opened up a small restaurant Mm. and you know, okay, along with the food, hookah is included. And for, you know, people from the Middle East, whether you're from Syria or Jordan or Iraq, they love to go there because for them, that's what they did back home. You suddenly play like, I guess, Feyruz or any other uh, Middle Eastern artist on your radio. They love it. You know, like that's their way of coping. Like they just want to be in a place where they can look at or think about back home or practice the way that they used to live back home. And in Canada or in the United States, anywhere where you need a car, that's in itself more difficult for them to live like they did back home. Because, you know, in, you know, our homeland, having a car was like a luxury. And in order to go see your family or your friend, all you have to do is go outside and walk Mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was finding a lot of issues that elderly uh, people from Syria are facing. And, uh, you know, even people who come with education, they're going through their own issues of trying to get jobs and find out like places where they can get their credentials recognized. But one thing I wanted to talk about uh, with my research, however, I'm not it's not my focus, um, which are, of course, like Assyrians. I do make a mention of Assyrians a lot, even actually when I was doing my interviews, I did a list of uh, I did a survey of demographics. With all participants. And it was interesting because I wanted to ask what is your ethnicity and what is your native language? Like, what's your native tongue in the migration or the mental health research? Would look at my question and say, why are you asking them if they are Assyrian? Or, like, what is this Syriac? Like, I had to educate. You know, even scholars looking for like how to how to kind of understand people from Mm -hmm. Syria because they were drafting their own demographic surveys. And, you know, you'd always find Kurds in there. You'd always find Armenians and even Yazidi, you know, people were being at least like known and understood by these people. But Assyrians were not. So I remember one time we had a meeting uh, for someone else's research and they were asking, so like, let's make sure we know all the languages. what what languages do Syrian people speak? Like we should, you know, be more inclusive. And I said, there's Syriac, like Aramaic, whatever you want to call it, like you should include it. And they're like, what? We didn't really find anybody in our, you know, sample that spoke this language. So why do you think it's important? I'm like, because there's a great group of people coming from the Northern, the uh, Northwestern part of Syria who are, you know, native Syriac speakers. Most of them don't even know Arabic. So like you need to include that. So that in itself is new to the literature, whether even Syrian people, I'm finding myself struggling to write about people from Syria because there's not a lot of research about Syrians up until like the conflict happened. Mm -hmm. Everything before that, Syrians were more like lumped into Middle Eastern migrants, Arab migrants, Arab American. So even like talking about Syrian people has been a new thing. So I think it's gonna be a little more work before like Assyrian people get mentioned more. But it is interesting because even when you talk to Assyrians from Syria, I mean, we, we know that like throughout history we've been persecuted, but like as people are helping Syrians, they don't know that like Syria is a country full of many ethnicities, people who speak many languages and that we need to be inclusive to all. We can't understand every person's suffering to be the same. Somebody who's living in the village is not the same as somebody who's living in the city either. And, you know, they're doing a good job. People are doing a good job of trying to be more sympathetic to those who had to live in camps versus, like, people who lived in the city and then left Syria. But, like, there is need, there needs to be more work done to kind of understand, like, the different different ethnic groups that are coming out of Syria, too. Mm-hmm. So I am basically done my research. Like, I just defended my thesis a couple weeks ago it passed. Congratulations. Thank you and I'm just kind of working now on the publication of the research. I spoke at one conference last year uh, it was North American Refugee Health and yeah I, I, I'm looking forward to sort of just applying like my research now in Canada uh, or at least in Toronto to start because a lot of like mental health services are not present for Syrians because we're missing a lot of like the understandings of what they even need for mental health resources. And also like settlement services are also providing these sort of supports. But we kind of need to m- know more because there's like this big group of people. There's over 50,000 Syrians in Canada that have come since the war. So, uh, it's a big group with a lot of needs, and Canada has put in a lot of money and invested in it, and a lot of people are invested in this group, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of getting into it, because there's like so much demand for people who speak Arabic, um, to be more involved, and uh, to utilize their skills, so. I'm just trying my best to, to make use of what I've learned over the years.
1: Well, thank you again so much, Rosie, for being willing to participate and talk with us on the Assyrian Podcast. I think that many listeners will find this conversation very fruitful.